Well, we're beginning a new series uh, today called The Quotable Jesus. Jesus had a way of putting things that even 2,000 years after he was on this earth, what he said is fixed in our minds. Maybe that's the reason that Jesus is perhaps quoted more than any other historical figure. Even skeptics can't help but quote Jesus. Sometimes the things he said captivated, infuriated, and comforted people all at the same time. At times he took conventional wisdom and turned it on its head, and other times he said exactly what people most needed to hear. So for 2,000 years, the words of Jesus have shaped the moral imaginations of people around the globe. So from the golden rule to loving your enemies to reminding us not to worry, the words of Jesus have provided clarity and healing and hope for millions. In the coming months, we're going to look at 15 different quotes from Jesus Our goal is to understand what he said, explain how it works and why it's good. And today we're going to start with actually a series of sayings, a series of phrases that are called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes is just the Latin word for blessed. But read carefully, you'll find that they may be startling. In some ways, they describe the world as it should be. Certainly not the way we experience it, but the way that it might ideally be. However, if you read it, you may have the reaction that many had at the time that Jesus first said these words. These things don't make sense. That's why they sound, I believe, so countercultural. Why don't we listen together as, uh, with the words that Matthew records in Matthew chapter 3, beginning, or 5, beginning with verse 3. If you'd like to follow along, you could grab one of the Pew Bibles. It's on page 1473, page 1473. Here's what Matthew tells us Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were here before you. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you've never heard these words before, perhaps you understand why so many over the centuries have uh, struggled to understand what Jesus is saying. And the first impression that many have is that what Jesus is saying here just doesn't make sense. Blessed are those who mourn. You've got to be kidding. Blessed are the meek. Of course, really? And the persecution deal. Okay, I just want to give you, if you don't think that these are startling words, go to work tomorrow, find someone you know kind of well, And just say, listen, I prayed this morning that you would be persecuted, but don't worry, just be happy. (laughs) These ideas were misunderstood then, and they're often misunderstood today. There's a contrast between what Jesus says and what conventional wisdom often has to say. I want you to watch this video clip from a movie called Searching for Bobby Fischer. You'll see a contrast between two ways of viewing the world. Oh, 
You know what the word contempt means? It's to think of others as being beneath you. To be unworthy of being in the same room with you. I don't feel that. Well, you better start. Because if you don't think it's a part of winning, you're wrong. You have to have contempt for your opponents. You have to hate them. But I don't. They hate you. They hate you, Josh. Fisher held the world in contempt. I'm not him. You're telling me. What you could say is that when Jesus used these words, what we call the Beatitudes, he was turning things upside down, although I will argue that Jesus was actually turning things back up the right way. At least that's the way Christians through the centuries have viewed the words that Jesus said. Of course, not everyone sees it that way. Periodically, I have a conversation with someone who would describe themselves as a skeptic. Maybe they're exploring faith, even Christian faith, but they wouldn't call themselves a Christian. Some of you might put yourselves in that category, and, and let me just tell you, it's okay. That's why we're here. Uh, we want to, if you allow us to, um, have conversations that might be helpful along your own spiritual journey. If you're in that category, though, you may identify with something I hear from time to time, and that is, they'll say, someone will say to me, you know, the words of Jesus are interesting, but sometimes when I read what he says, it sounds sort of weird and unrealistic, like the idea of turning the other cheek. What's that going to get you? Well, if you want an exhibit, um, an example of the weird and unrealistic, all you need to do is to read the Beatitudes. They're exhibit A. To be upfront, as counterintuitive as it seems, I believe that what we have here is profound wisdom. Wisdom that, if taken seriously, would make our world a better place and make our lives more satisfying, although that's not the way many see these words. Regardless of where you're at, I do want to make a case, and I hope you'll listen with me, about Jesus and what he has to say, that it really is great wisdom here. The first thing, though, that we need to wrestle with is the word blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? It's actually a fairly hard word to translate because, as you may know, if you've ever spoken or studied in another language, sometimes there are words that are not directly translatable. There isn't a one-to-one -one relationship because there might be in one language or the other more connotation to the word. And that's what we've got going on here. So people have tried to translate this word in a number of different ways. Sometimes simply, you'll say, someone will say, well, it's happy, although I think that's too subjective. Others say, well, maybe we could say satisfied or congratulation, or wonderful news. Some just simply say fortunate are those who are experiencing whatever it is Jesus is talking about. I think all those options are helpful, but in the end, I think that we're going to stick with the word blesses because I do think it captures the idea fairly well. The key thing, though, to say about blessed is that it reflects God's point of view, not necessarily a human point of view. When people live the way that Jesus describes 
He's saying that God is pleased with you and rewards those who live out these values. One debate is whether Jesus intended this blessing to be for now or for some future day to come, say in eternity. And the answer is both, although they won't fully be realized until Jesus returns. It's worth noting that this blessedness comes independent of circumstances. In other words, in the midst of suffering or persecution, it is still possible to experience God's blessing. What's clear is that Jesus has turned things upside down, or as I said just a moment ago, he's turned things right side up. But in Jesus' day, as in ours, many believed that it wasn't the things that Jesus said were blessed, but rather the rich and the powerful and the competent and the successful. You were blessed in those days, as you are often people think in ours, if you live a carefree life and spend your days doing just what you want. You're blessed if you eat the best of food, drive the nicest chariots, live in the fanciest houses, and have the most exotic vacations. Those who sail through life without any hardship, those are the ones we often think of as blessed. And those who have none of those things are to be pitied then and now. At least that's the way people often think. That's again why what Jesus said here is so startling. It's evident that he has a completely different idea of what it means to be blessed. We are going to go through these one by one, but let me just say the intention is that they be taken together. At the end, we're going to draw some conclusions, but understand that if you take any single one of them, it'll seem unbalanced. Somebody came to me between services and said, you know, if you think about blessed are the meek, you, you think that all we're going to do is be people who get walked on. But if you take them all together, you see how we can keep them balanced. But let's look at each of these statements. The first of the Beatitudes is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are two primary words that are used to describe the poor in Greek. One word just simply says they're people who have few resources. That's often the way we describe poverty. But the other word is a much stronger word that means that those are the destitute, the desperate, and the beggar. And it's the second word that Jesus uses here. Blessed are those who recognize their utter helplessness before God. The temptation that we often have is to believe that we're good enough and can please God, but the poor in spirit know that because of their brokenness and sin, and maybe their material poverty as well, that we'll never be right with God unless we admit our deepest need and learn to accept his love and grace. So the first of the Beatitudes undercuts the notion that some believe that material blessings are a sign of God's approval. That there's a formula, make God happy and you'll get more of everything, more stuff, more success, and better parking spots at the mall. It'll all come together. If any of you have ever been involved in a 12-step program, you'll know the first step in a 12-step program is to admit your powerlessness over whatever it is that's controlling your life. Blessed, Jesus says, are those who recognize their spiritual powerlessness and have put their full trust in him. The second beatitude says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We tend to think, blessed are the happy. But Jesus says, blessed are the unhappy, or at least you could translate it that way. Now, for us, that sadness, that uh, uh, mourning could be the sadness of the loss of a loved one, the ending of a marriage, a financial setback, a dream deferred, or even a professional disappointment. But it could also be the sadness of seeing evil prevail in some place, either in our lives or in the world in which we live. But it also speaks to something else, something that some biblical writers call godly sorrow. St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 says, talk, uses this phrase to describe how we're to feel sorrow at our own sin. 
He's not talking about regret. Regret is simply when you're sorry that you got caught. But to mourn or to have godly sorrow over our sin is to wish that we could have a do-over and to wish so deeply. It's not to minimize sin, but to see it for what it is and to be truly sad. But those who mourn, Jesus says, will be comforted. And this is a theme that's, that's really littered throughout the Bible, that God is near the brokenhearted, that he forgives the penitent, and one day will wipe away every tear. The next beatitude is, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And meekness is often confused with weakness. Many today would say that it's the aggressive that inherit the earth, not the meek. But a meek person is not passive. Rather, they are someone who is humble and gentle. Humility was not a moral virtue in the time that Jesus uh, lived. None of the Greeks put that on any list of virtues. But Jesus, through his words and his actions, placed humility among the most important of all the virtues. So Christians really brought this to the forefront. The meek acknowledge their dependence on God rather than exalting their own self-sufficiency. The meek give control of their lives to God and humbly accept whatever he provides. And Jesus says they will inherit the earth. I'm going to use that. What he means and what they would have heard is an allusion to the idea of promised land, the promised land that the Jews were given, the blessed place that God had prepared for his people. The next beatitude is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. filled. Then as now, we live in a hungry culture. In our culture, we're hungry for success, for money, for popularity, for power, for prestige, for achievement, for pleasure. Coaches even ask players, how badly or how hungry are you for success. We celebrate winners, the rich, the powerful, the achievers, and in our hunger, we will do whatever it takes to get what we want. But Jesus says the truly happy, happy hunger and thirst for righteousness. This means that uh, to yearn for God, we yearn for him above all else. To have a deep desire to see his will done on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus tells us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. And to do God's will and have the commitment to make that first in our lives. These are the ones, Jesus says, that will be filled. The next beatitude is blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy is a central theme in the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. God's described as merciful. And really what it means when we say God is merciful is that he does not give us what we deserve. In fact, instead, he gives us what we do not deserve. In the same way, we're to imitate God. We're to show mercy to others, to give them forgiveness even when they don't deserve it, and to show them mercy that they have not earned. Mercy is compassion for those who are in need. And so if we're merciful, we will extend relief and cure and heal, healing and help to others. The merciful are those who are committed to help the oppressed and the sick and the immigrant and the orphan and the widow. If we do this, we're told that we too will be shown mercy. Now, I don't want to make this a formula, show mercy and you get mercy. Rather, mercy that we extend to others comes out of gratitude for God's mercy given to us. The next beatitude says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In ancient thought as in ours, although even more so then, they saw the heart as the center of a human being. The idea was that the condition of our hearts determines who, what we will do how our actions are lived out. So if the heart's rotten, the results will be rotten too. But a pure heart results in actions that are genuine and sincere. And the reward 
is that we will see God. Only the pure in heart want to see God and will see God. The next is blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This is perhaps the least controversial of all of the Beatitudes. But in Jesus' day, this would have been seen as totally unrealistic. Some of you know that when Jesus was saying these words that all of Israel was under Roman rule. They, they didn't have much freedom of their own. So this, this was deeply resented. And so there were even groups like the Zealots who were committed to restoring self-rule of Israel and if necessary, do it by guerrilla warfare. But Jesus says that's not God's way. Don't seek to do God's will through force, whether you do it through military or politically. And Jesus points here to a different way of life. Peacemakers are those who work to preserve peace where it exists and to try to restore it where it's broken. Now, peacemaking is often a thankless task. Sometimes you can work for a long time to bring people together, whether in a family or in some geopolitical situation. You work hard only to see things unravel as one side or the other decides they just don't want peace. The reward for peacemaking isn't success, but faithfulness. It's no wonder that Jesus calls them children of God. Now, let me deal with one misconception here that sometimes creeps in, and that is that Christians are to be pacifists. Now, I actually have some sympathies with pacifists because I think they have taken this peacemaking thing seriously, although I think they're also being unrealistic as well. The primary goal of any active force, whether it's by a police department or a military, is to protect the vulnerable and to bring peace. That's why we call policemen or police women peace officers. It's why UN forces are known as peacekeepers. About 20 years ago, I met uh, someone named Andrew who became a friend of mine. He, he was raised in Belfast, Northern Ireland during what the Irish call the Troubles. As a teenager, uh, he became a follower of Christ. This was in the early 70s. And not long after, joined a group of Christians committed to bringing about peace between Catholics and Protestants at a time when this was just simply not done. In fact, one story he told me is that one time they had a conference in Belfast and a young Irishman from Dublin crashed on his couch for a few days. His name was Paul Hewson, although some of you would know him by the name Bono. Andrew and his friends did what was hard and at the time, time even dangerous, but they prayed and worked for peace. And one day in 1998, that peace came. The last of the Beatitudes is blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is doing here is being incredibly honest with us, and that is to say that what he says, and if we do these things, it may well put us at odds with those who do not understand our values. The early Christians were fundamentally different from the people around them. They produced, and that produced suspicion. There were those who opposed them, persecuted them because of their relationship to Jesus. And you may have experienced this as well. Perhaps it's in a job or in a marriage or with a friend or a family member. Your commitment to Jesus Christ may mean that others will reject you, insult you, and say things that are untrue, even evil about you. If this happens, Jesus says something really striking. He says, rejoice and be glad, which really doesn't make sense. Why does he say that? Well, one thing he says and points out is that someday he's going to make it up for us. He says, great is your reward in heaven. And he also says that this shows that we're the real deal. He says, in the same way they persecuted the prophets. So to follow Jesus is countercultural. We shouldn't be surprised if people oppose us. 
By the way, though, this is not to say that we're to be intentionally confrontational. The assumption here is that the reason for persecution is because we're meek, righteous, pure, merciful, and peaceful, not because we're noisy and judgmental. The persecution is because of righteousness, not tactlessness. It's because we're connected to Jesus, not because we're jerks. We need to be people of peace, even when we're persecuted. Now, these eight statements are as countercultural now as they were then. Jesus says to us, as he did then, blessed are those who are pure in spirit, not the self-confident and the self-reliant. Blessed are those who mourn, not the pleasure-seeking, beautiful people. Blessed are the meek, not the proud and powerful and self-important. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not those who are satisfied with themselves. Blessed are the merciful, not the self-righteous, who say, I can take care of myself. Blessed are the pure in heart, not the sophisticated and broad-minded. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the competitive and the aggressive. Blessed are the persecuted because of righteousness, because they know Jesus, not the adaptable, the popular, the don't rock the boat types. The values Jesus taught are a complete inversion of the cultural machismo that's so common today. Jesus rejects the kind of Machiavellian manipulation that seeks to put ourselves first and to leave others behind. Instead, Jesus promises that his kingdom comes to the powerless, his blessing to the oppressed who trust God rather than their own power. And he fills up those who are more concerned about living righteous lives than trying to manipulate the strings of power and get what they can get. Now this, though, shouldn't be misunderstood as a formula for success. Do this and you get a reward. But it also isn't intended to be some kind of burdensome set of ethical demands. Sure, we ought to live these things out. We ought to seek them with all our hearts. But this isn't the way to earn God's favor. It would actually be easy to turn these into a set of statements that we would be able to define who's in and out of the kingdom, whether they can do these things. But in reality, none of us can do them. If we read these honestly, we know that we can never truly be pure in spirit, pure in heart, or poor in spirit, or pure in heart, or we won't always be peacemakers. We will fail. In fact, as we try to live these out, we'll come to be more and more aware of our need. The poor in spirit are those who are blessed, not because they have it all perfected, but because they recognize their deep need and have thrown themselves at God and asked for mercy. The pure in heart, even if they achieve great purity, will recognize how far short they fall of true purity and trust in God's grace. The rewards should be considered gifts, not something we deserve. They're something that are given us by God. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of being with someone where you can really be honest, someone you trust, and you have a conversation where you can bare your soul and admit what may be some of your deepest, darkest secrets. These things don't happen often, at least they haven't often happened to me, but sometimes it's a private conversation with a single person or maybe a small group of people. And for some reason, find the freedom to be honest and share maybe different things that have happened in our lives. Maybe how we've been hurt or wounded by someone. Maybe a parent who said something to us a week ago or a decade ago that still smarts and stings. Someone else shares about an addiction they've been living with for years and just can't seem to to break. Someone else shares how they've been trapped by what might be a compulsive need to achieve and accumulate more stuff, even though they now see the emptiness of that. It's in moments like that that we can clearly see our spiritual poverty, our unhealed griefs, it hurts, and our sins. 
our need to hold on to a way of life that used to seem satisfying, but we know now is ultimately empty. And in those moments, to experience together the blessings of God despite our spiritual poverty, that God has made us rich, not in what we've done, but by his grace, that it is not because it's easy for us to be meek or per- merciful or pure in heart, because it, but because it's so hard that God's grace in our lives is even sweeter. It's then that we see that the Beatitudes are not really a reward for meritorious service, but the space in which God's grace fills our deepest needs. The Beatitudes do tell us that as Christians, we ought to be different from those around us, different at work and at home when we're out to dinner, when we're at school, to be different when we play games and the way we watch TV, but we will never do this perfectly, which shows that God's grace for us is fills that gap between the ideal and the reality. It's where we find his grace and experience the joy and satisfaction and blessing that we never thought possible. Now, it's possible as we try to live these things out that we may also experience persecution, but we live with the hope that one day all these things will be made right. In the meantime, though, we seek to do our part to see the kingdom of God prevail in whatever little part of the world in which we are. And we throw ourselves on his mercy, trusting in his love and grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words of Jesus. Without them, we would be stuck with values that frankly are a dead end, that don't lead to happiness and satisfaction, but lead somewhere else. We'd be working hard to pursue things that won't make us happy, things that lead to emptiness. Instead, you've given us direction and you've given us responsibility. So help us commit to pursue you and your ways with our whole hearts. And Father, in the meantime, as we know that we will fail, may we experience your grace in the gaps. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.